His story has been passed down from one generation to the next. He felt that democracy in its purest form is for all people. But there's something deeper than what he did. It's about who he was. Lincoln grew up in poverty. He's living proof that Americans can rise from obscurity to power. He takes the Declaration of Independence and turns it into a nation's moral compass. From the History Channel, this is Making Lincoln, a podcast about a nation splintered apart and the boy from the frontiers of Indiana who would pull it back together. I'm Andre DeShields. I'm an actor, a performer, and, as it happens, a great lover of American history. Today, we're looking at the origin story of our 16th president, where he came from, and how the experiences of his early life shaped the man he became. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In February of 1809... In a little cabin near Hodgenville, Kentucky, Abraham Lincoln is born. But the family doesn't stay in Kentucky long. There's a title dispute over the family's land, and the Lincolns are forced to move on to the remote frontier of southwestern Indiana. They settle on another farm in Spencer County, and the family struggles to make ends meet. Harold Holzer is a biographer and Lincoln scholar at Hunter College in New York. He tells us, life for young Abe is a hard, scrabble, scrappy existence. They lived on the frontier in a one-room cabin that had a dirt floor. Lincoln's father expects him to put in long hours helping on the farm, even when he's just a child. But, according to historian Greg Jackson, Lincoln does not take to farm work. Frontier life is dangerous and consists of a lot of hard labor, clearing the land, chopping down trees, removing tree stumps. Lincoln is a hard worker, but he doesn't like physical labor. He's not someone who enjoys farming. Tragedy strikes when Lincoln is just nine years old. He loses his mother. He helps his father bury her in their woods. To make matters worse, his father leaves the farm and the state altogether in search of a new wife. And he was left alone with his older sister for months and months. A nine-year-old and an 11-year-old left alone in the wilderness. Bears and other wild animals roam the woods that surround them. Presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin says, it's a wonder they didn't die. How the children survived that time alone on the frontier is hard to imagine. They were foraging for food. They looked like wild animals. There were times when he fell into an extreme sense of sadness and melancholy that would stay with him the rest of his life. 
Though the months alone feel endless, Thomas Lincoln does eventually return. He brings with him his new wife, a widow with three children of her own. As historian and author Ted Whitmer tells it, this is where things begin to look up for Abe Lincoln. Lincoln's father remarried a woman named Sarah Bush Johnston. We're used to reading about evil stepmothers. Lincoln had a good stepmother. She brought a little library of books. She couldn't even read them herself, but she had them. Lincoln is immediately drawn to the books. His new stepmother sees the boy's curiosity for learning and encourages it in a way his father can't understand. In Thomas Lincoln's view, there's always work to be done in the fields and around the farm, and that's where his son should spend his time. Nonetheless, Lincoln teaches himself to read. He studies math on his own. Doris Kearns Goodwin describes just how necessary that independent study was. He went to a primitive school for less than one full year, where he stood out. One of his friends said his ambition soared beyond all the rest of us, that while we were playing, he was reading and rereading his books. He's reading about George Washington. He's reading about the Founding Fathers. Richard Blackie, Vanderbilt Professor of History, explains that it is through this reading that Lincoln begins to understand the beliefs the country was built on and take them on as his own. He is reading that all men are created equal. It's the most revolutionary statement ever articulated by any founding country. That is a mind-blowing proposition. It is through books that his world expands and he starts to imagine another way of life. So when, at 19, Lincoln hears about a job that will take him south, he jumps at the opportunity. Princeton senior research scholar Alan Welzo describes Lincoln's first chance to see this larger world. He took his flatboat journey down the Mississippi River to New Orleans, and there he saw the big city he saw what a new world might look like beyond the remote farm. New Orleans is larger and busier than any place Lincoln could have imagined. At the time, it's the country's third largest city and the wealthiest. But he is also confronted with something that would haunt him forever. Christy Coleman, executive director of the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation, describes the experience. New Orleans was the largest slave trading port in the United States. It's this global enterprise. In key areas of the Deep South, you're talking about communities that are 60 to 70% enslaved. So the use of terror and violence had been the method of control. In Lincoln's small frontier farm life, this kind of slavery is not something he sees every day. Author Clint Smith says the sights he takes in on this journey change Lincoln. He saw human beings with hearts and minds being sold like chattel, like animals, like furniture. And it left a lasting and haunting impression on him. Lincoln returns to his family, but by 23, he is determined to strike out on his own. He's offered a job as a clerk at the general store in a nearby town, New Salem. It's just over the border in Illinois. 
His father doubts that he would even make it through that first winter. But Lincoln is determined to leave farming behind for something bigger. New Salem is a frontier town. It's new, established just two years prior. It's small, just a few hundred people. And it's a tough town. There's a gang led by a local man named Jack Armstrong. Newcomers have to prove themselves with their fists. Armstrong literally challenges every newcomer to a fight and is pretty much undefeated. Armstrong and Lincoln face off, but it quickly becomes clear that the reigning champ may have met his match. Lincoln, with his famous height and strength, can hold his own. Lincoln can probably even beat his opponent. But to let Armstrong save face, Lincoln graciously allows him to call the match a draw. It earns him the respect of his new community. The town has a post office. It has three general stores and a blacksmith shop. For Lincoln, New Salem is a bustling metropolis, says Harold Holzer. It had an intellectual community. It had a little debating society. It had a teacher who loaned him books. Lincoln soon becomes known for his intelligence and his sense of humor. And he's industrious. He learns several trades at once. He's a shopkeeper. He's a land surveyor. Eventually, Lincoln became a grocer and he sold whiskey. He also becomes the village postmaster. And that's where he first got news beyond Illinois reading about issues far beyond his limited sphere. Everybody would come to the store, they'd debate issues, they'd stay around and talk politics. In remote small towns like New Salem, people gather on Saturdays when politicians come out to give speeches. It's the center of social life. And Lincoln discovers that he loves politics, not just observing it, but actually participating in it. There was something about the way Lincoln spoke he was able to translate complex issues into something simple. Within eight months of his being in New Salem, the residents wanted him to run for the state legislature. At the time, there were two political parties, the Democrats and the Whigs. The Whig Party is most interested in infrastructure that will help the country grow. Lincoln begins his political career as a Whig. He's pro-federal government and especially pro-infrastructure. In order to spur the economy in frontier towns like New Salem, he promises to build railroads and expand navigable rivers. He tells the people, trust me, I will keep my promises. In Lincoln's day, if you wanted to run for office, you simply put out a handbill telling what your promises were and what you stood for. So at 23 years old, he writes this handbill, and it's an extraordinary document. First of all, most politicians put out a short document. His is 2,000 words long, and it's very personal. It starts saying, every man has his peculiar ambition. Mine is to be esteemed by my fellow man. And what he means by that is to accomplish something worthy so my story will be told. He talks about how he grew up, that he comes from humble origins, and if he's elected, that's who he will be. He loses his first run at a seat, but he runs again, two years later, and this time, he wins. 
1834, Abraham Lincoln is elected to the Illinois State Legislature as a Whig and becomes one of the Long Nine of Sagamon County. The Long Nine were a group of Whig legislators, including Lincoln, who got their name because they were all over six feet tall. Lincoln was immediately perceived as different, unique, wily and smart, taller than everyone else, funnier than everyone else, stronger than everyone else. He was a magnetic person. He was always making friends, and they gravitated to him. And he meets John T. Stewart, who advises him that he should study the law. But in those days, becoming a lawyer in Sagamon County is no easy task. Lincoln once again had to teach himself. He had to study it all on his own, however. He would have to borrow books from John Stewart. It was 20 miles away. He'd have to walk those 20 miles, borrow the book, come back, read the book, return the book, and then get another one. But he passed the bar. He's now on his way. He's taking another step. He's going to be around people who make things happen. Lincoln serves four terms in the Illinois State Legislature. All the while, his profile and his prestige grows both in and beyond Illinois. And Lincoln's longtime argument for infrastructure reform becomes more and more relevant. The economy is transforming. Transportation of goods, people, raw materials have become critical to its expansion. That means more roads, more waterways, and according to Stephen Aaron, president and CEO of the Autry Museum of the American West, with these changes, more cotton. The transportation revolution is so crucial to moving goods and people. Factories which are using new steam technologies makes cotton profitable in a way that it hadn't been, makes it the boom crop changes the southern economy, where slave-based agriculture becomes enormously profitable. And it's not just the South that is benefiting from this boom, as historian Caroline Janney puts it. The entire United States benefits from slavery, even if they want to argue that they don't. Northern cotton mills are reliant upon the cotton produced by enslaved laborers in the South. The insurance industry in New York City is where slaveholders bought policies to protect the bodies of their enslaved men and women. Merchants, bankers, the brokers, the people who extended loans, they are all tied up in the institution of slavery. But there certainly were white Northerners who believe that slavery is morally wrong. They are abolitionist. Lincoln at this point is not an abolitionist. He is anti-slavery. But in his view, slavery is something that will naturally fade away as the country continues on its path of progress. And as a politician, he has to be careful how he expresses his views against slavery. In 1837, Lincoln moves to Springfield and joins the law practice of John Stewart, the same man who loaned him all those law books. The Whig Party has successfully relocated the Illinois State Capitol there from Vandalia. Lincoln is in need of a bed. So he stops at a local general store looking for leads. Alan Belzo says that's where Lincoln meets his best friend. The man managing the store is a young man named Joshua Speed. Speed and Lincoln take an almost instant liking to each other. The two are about as close as anyone really gets to Abraham Lincoln, who is otherwise a very, very private person. Harold Holzer describes what the typical housing conditions of the era were like. 
For the next four years, they lived in the same room. They slept in the same bed. There were more people than beds in those days. It's there that he meets Stephen Douglas, the little giant, as he's called, because he's short of stature, but huge in personality. Stephen Douglas is serving in the Illinois House of Representatives, and he and Lincoln disagree on a whole host of things, infrastructure key among them. When a tough recession hits Illinois in 1837, Douglas is convinced that more building projects will only make the problem worse. And as a Democrat, he's opposed to government support for infrastructure projects. He tells Lincoln, the economy is a disaster, and funding for these damn improvement bills is as dead as that bear under your feet, Lincoln. And if you keep going, your career will soon enjoy the same fate. Douglas is not just Lincoln's political rival. He is the one to introduce Lincoln to his future wife, the woman Douglas himself hopes to marry. Catherine Clinton is author of Mrs. Lincoln, A Life. Mary Todd was the belle of the town. She was beautiful. She was witty. She attracted many suitors. She was actually courted by Stephen Douglas, among others. She was educated. She came from a long line of diplomats, ambassadors, governors. She was very interested in politics. Mary Todd comes from a prominent Whig political family. Her father is a slaveholder, but he is close to political leaders Lincoln admires. When Lincoln meets Mary Todd, he feels an instant connection, and she sees something in him as well. They connect on politics, and their contrasting personalities draw them together. Lincoln is easygoing. Mary is impulsive and lively. For a while, it seems like both their future together, as well as Lincoln's political career, are on the rise. But then things start to unravel. For the first time in his career, Lincoln fails to keep his campaign promises. The 1837 recession has now dragged on for four years. Lincoln promised ambitious infrastructure projects, but the state legislature can't come up with the funds to finish them. Feeling like a failure after serving four terms, Lincoln decides he can't run for state legislature again. But that won't be the only commitment he can't keep. Harold Holzer says Lincoln's relationship with Mary is also under strain. Abraham and Mary courted for two years, but they had kind of a stormy courtship. Opposites tracked, and they were definitely opposite in temperament. He was laconic and laid back. She was mercurial. She was temperamental. But they decided to get married. Abraham and Mary were supposed to be married on January 1st, 1841. But Lincoln got cold feet. They broke up. He called it the fatal 1st of January. Doris Kearns Goodwin says this begins one of the darkest periods in Lincoln's life. He broke the promise to his constituents, and he'd broken his promise to Mary. And he said at the time that the chief gem of his character was his ability to keep his word. And now that he was no longer confident he could do that, he wasn't sure he could do anything. That's what led him into this most profound depression that he had ever suffered. His friends worried that he might take his life. Lincoln takes a further blow when he loses another important person in his life. Here's Alan Gelzo. Joshua Speed announces he's closing up shop in Springfield and moving back to Kentucky. Lincoln loses his closest friend. 
Lincoln can barely leave his bed after all the hard work and ambition, the self-made success to fail in his political role, to fail to keep his engagement vow, and now the loss of his closest friend. It feels like his life is falling apart. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Abraham Lincoln is on the verge of a mental break. His political future is unsure. His relationship is in tatters. He risks being completely swallowed by despair. But that drive that he'd had ever since he was a little kid, ever since his mother died, to create something that would allow his story to be told, saved him. Lincoln's depression could not defeat his ambition nor the desire to be remembered for his accomplishments. He confessed to one friend an irrepressible desire not to die before accomplishing something large enough to redound the interest of his fellow man. He finished his term in the state legislature. He went back to his practice of law. He and Mary had stayed apart for an entire year. And then finally, in 1842, friends brought them back together and they renewed their engagement. They got married. He would later say in an inaugural address, Always bear in mind that your own resolution to succeed is more important than any one thing. His ambition provided the fuel of energy for him, and his aim will next be for the United States Congress. In 1843, Lincoln runs for Congress for the first time and is defeated. But his setback doesn't deter him. He runs again three years later, and he wins. Alan Delzo describes what happens next. He is elected to Congress as a Whig, and the Whigs were bitterly critical of the Mexican War. Mexican War broke out in 1846 and was widely viewed as the pet project of Democratic President James Knox Polk. War with Mexico could open new territory for the extension of slavery. Lincoln makes a speech in Congress denouncing President Polk for triggering on the Mexican War on false pretenses. Lincoln's speech does not go over well. The speech backfired on Lincoln, and he suffered for it. The Mexican War was popular. The United States gains enough territory to create the future states of California, New Mexico, and Arizona. 
The Democrats call Lincoln unpatriotic. Even Mary Todd suggests that the speech may not have been the best political move, though she agrees it is a worthy position. At the end of 1849, he's a lame duck. Harold Holzer. He comes back to Springfield, Illinois, very dispirited. He's out of politics, so he turns back to the law, traveling the big eighth judicial circuit in Illinois. Eventually, Lincoln settles into this new life. He and Mary have two children. His law practice thrives. In court, it seems like there's no argument he can't win. But beyond Springfield, the nation is starting to come apart. At the heart of this fracture is slavery. In 1850, Southern members of Congress pushed through the Fugitive Slave Act, which requires Northerners to return slaves who have fled the South. The North is outraged. Christy Coleman. People are being kidnapped. Bounty hunters are going into the North and capturing free people. Whether they've been free for generations or not, it just is you got a random black person and I can get to them, I can capture them and take them away. Lincoln is aware of all this. In the midst of the growing fracture, one of slavery's fiercest opponents is rising to power. Frederick Douglass had been born into slavery. Kenneth Morris is a descendant of Frederick Douglass and president of the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives. He describes Douglass's early life as an enslaved child in Baltimore. He was separated from his mother when he was about a year old. He was chosen when he was about eight or nine years old to go to Baltimore to be the house servant for his master's family. His mistress had never had a slave before and didn't know that it was illegal to teach him to read and write. And so out of the goodness of her heart, she began to teach young Frederick his ABCs. And Frederick knew that he would one day make his attempt to escape. There were lots of consequences for people that attempted to run away and that were recaptured. People would have their feet cut off, other limbs cut off. They would have to wear these grotesque contraptions around their necks. Christy Coleman tells us what awaits fugitive slaves captured by these bounty hunters. Severe whipping with a bullwhip, cutting your Achilles tendon. You can still work. Can't run. And the ultimate punishment is death. Douglas was helped by my great-great-great-grandmother, Anna Murray, who was the first in her family to be born free. She sold a feather bed to help finance his escape. She sewed the sailor's disguise that he would wear, and he carried with him seamen's protection papers that he had borrowed from a friend. Anna Murray buys Douglas a train ticket and sends him on his way, hoping the borrowed seamen's papers will convince the rail conductors. He successfully escaped on that train and then by boat, and he would taste freedom for the first time in New York City. Anna would join him two weeks later and become his wife. But escape is far from Douglas's only ambition. He soon rises as a staunch activist for abolition, and who better to describe the horrors of slavery than someone who's suffered it? After escaping from slavery, Frederick Douglass wrote his first autobiography. It became a bestseller, made him a household name. It made him an instant celebrity. And he joined the anti-slavery lecture circuit. Douglass gives his famous 
Independence Day speech at the Rochester Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society in 1852. He says, What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, A day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your sermons and thanksgivings with all their religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation on this earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Across the country from Frederick Douglass, there's another Douglass hoping to end the argument over slavery, though not for the same reasons or with the same results. Stephen A. Douglas, Lincoln's longtime rival, United States Senator from Illinois, introduced a law in 1854 that he thought would end slavery agitation forever. And it was called the Kansas-Nebraska Act. As Harold Holster explains, if the act passes, the new territories of Kansas and Nebraska will be able to choose whether they join the Union as a free state or a slave state. Caroline Janney again. With this act, the balance between free states and enslaved states is going to be thrown into jeopardy. Since the Missouri Compromise of 1820, Northerners thought slavery will never be north of the southern border of Missouri. Now, potentially, there could be even more slave states, and they will have even more power. In 1854, Lincoln is still mostly on the sidelines. He's focused on his law firm and his family. But this act gets his attention. He had always imagined that the institution of slavery in the United States would gradually die a quiet death. But across the nation, things are anything but quiet. If the Kansas-Nebraska Act becomes law, slavery's power will only grow. Lincoln won't accept as the country starts to break apart, once again, Lincoln feels the call to politics. Most settlers want Kansas to be a free state, but border ruffians from Missouri, which was a slave state, invade Kansas and steal elections to try to make it a slave state. There's a full-fledged war going on. The Supreme Court ruled that black people had never been and could not be citizens of the United States. So blacks have no rights which white men are bound to respect. Lincoln saw that all these series of events divided the country. It divided every party. There comes a point for him when morality and the idea of the expansion of human dignity takes the fore. That's next on Making Lincoln. Making Lincoln is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. 
McKamey Lynn, supervising producer, and Julie Magruder, producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Ashley Warren is the associate producer. Galen Mullins edited and mixed this episode with assistance from James Hansen. Abraham Lincoln was originally produced by Radical Media for the History Channel. <laughs>